0: You are listening to a sermon from St Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at st peters dundee.org.uk. While we're reading this evening in John chapter 15. We were looking at chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, last Lord's Day morning, turning to the second half of John chapter 15. It's on page 1083, if you're using the church Bible. No idea where it is if you're using your smartphone, but if you've got a smartphone, you're smart enough to find where John 15 is on that smartphone's Bible. And uh, we are continuing in Jesus' teaching to his disciples the evening of uh, his passion. Uh, Judas has gone out into the night. Uh, Jesus has foretold that the disciples will leave him, that Peter will deny him. He's just been teaching them about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit to strengthen them. And in chapter 15, in the first half, about the way in which they can think about their union with him uh, in terms of this picture of Christ being the vine and the Father being the vine dresser who prunes the vine and we who are the branches that he calls to bear fruit. And he continues now in verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, It would love you as its own, but as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty Of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counselor comes, he's referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. One of the best-known philosophers of the 20th century, uh, a man whose name you can forget, uh, it was uh, Alfred North Whitehead, and you've probably already forgotten the name, but he said, Uh, what I've always found a very interesting thing, he said, you can summarize the history of Western philosophy by saying it's simply a series of footnotes to the Greek philosopher Plato. And I've sometimes thought that you can say something rather similar about the Bible story. The Bible story, the story of the gospel that begins in Genesis chapter three and ends in Revelation chapter 22, you can think of as a series of footnotes on God's promise in Genesis 3:15. It's in that promise in the light of the sin of Adam and Eve and their fall, that God promises there will be an extended conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that that conflict, that ongoing conflict through the ages, will reach a point of climax when the serpent himself engages in conflict with one particular seed of the woman. In that conflict, the serpent will crush the heel of the seed of the woman, and in the process of having his heel crushed, the seed of the woman will crush that is, destroy the power of the serpent himself. It's actually a great clue to reading the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, you keep your eyes on that promise and see the way in which in the ongoing conflicts of the Old Testament, of darkness and light, of the city of Babel against the people of God, of Jerusalem and Babylon, of David and Goliath. You're not simply looking at a story of fights and wars and battles, but the outworking of a promise of God. And in John's gospel, and this is something John has a very special interest in, the way in which when Jesus comes into the world, the serpent, the evil one, as it were, comes out of the darkness and grapples with him and seeks to destroy him. And this whole section of John's gospel had begun in chapter 13 by telling us that the serpent, Satan, had actually entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot, as though he had come to indwell Judas in order that he might destroy this seed of the woman. And Jesus is teaching his disciples how he is himself going to suffer. He is going to be crucified. But in that event of having his heel crushed, he is actually going to cast out, to overcome the serpent himself and bring in the glorious victory of the cross. In the first half of his talk to them, he's been speaking about their fellowship with him, their union with Christ. And he'd used this illustration as we saw last time in chapter 15 in those first 17 verses. We are, as Christians, so united to him that through us he bears fruit. We're so united to him that as we live in him, in union and communion with him, we discover that the Father comes and with his sharp but perfectly handled knife, he prunes us in order that we may bear more fruit. He gives the Christian a totally different view of struggles and sufferings and affliction from the view the non-Christian could ever have. The Christian sees the hand of the Father shaping him, molding him, transforming her to be like the Lord Jesus, to bear, as Jesus says here, much fruit. But as happens fairly frequently in this talk that Jesus has with his disciples, the atmosphere very rapidly changes. And you would see that in these verses just by noting the verbs that dominate the conversation. In the first half of the chapter, those verbs are remain, abide in me, dwell in me, and love as I have loved you. But you just need to put your eye down the second half of the chapter to see that the verbs that dominate are radically different, two of them in particular. The verb to hate is used seven times. The verb to persecute is used twice. What is Jesus doing here? Well, of course, what he's doing here is bringing these disciples into an understanding of the nature of their future Christian life. He wants them to be realistic about what is involved in Christian discipleship. Jesus is an optimist, and Christians are optimists. The last book of the Bible tells us that Jesus will win. And so we are optimists. But we are not called to be blind optimists. We're called to be optimists who are also realists. And he's urging his disciples now to be realistic about the Christian life. And to understand that as he launches them into their future Christian life, they're going to experience opposition and even persecution and he's telling them this in advance what a wise counselor he is he's telling them in advance so they won't be surprised when it happens it's a great lesson isn't it uh, sometimes when uh, folks become christians life changes so marvelously. Peace with God is such a great thing. The joy of Christ is so marvelous that you, you might almost be forgiven for thinking that you are now about to glide to heaven and that life will never be difficult anymore. Sometimes, alas, false teachers under the name of Christianity teach people that this is the way. Africa is invaded, alas, by multitudes of preachers and teachers from the West who sell the gospel on the basis that if you become a Christian, life will be health, wealth, and happiness. And Jesus does not want his disciples to be under that illusion. And so he says to them, you'll notice at the beginning of 16, as he looks back on what he's just taught them, He says, I've said all these things to you so that in the New New International Version, you will not go astray, or I think as it might better be translated, so that you'll you'll not fall back. You'll not say, oh, what's happening to me? Why is God doing this to me? Something must be going wrong in my Christian life if there are struggles and if there is opposition. Sometimes whole churches can be like that things become difficult. There are pressures. There is opposition. And uh, sometimes Christians foolishly sit back and say, but things like this don't happen in a church like ours. But Jesus says, wherever there is the rooting of the gospel in the lives of individuals or churches, there is bound to be opposition. You're not telling us to look for it. Some Christians foolishly seem to look for it. He's not saying to us, you need to be angular and difficult so that people who aren't Christians will oppose you. He is saying, all you need to do is to live in union and communion with me. And there will be occasions, for some of you, many occasions, and we know enough about the men who are in this room to know that from even within the New Testament itself, several of them suffered immensely. If you are a Christian, if we are a Christian church, then opposition will come. And he wants us not only to be forewarned. Forewarned is forearmed. He wants us all to understand what is As it were, going on behind this opposition, underneath this opposition, what God is doing about this opposition. And that's what he's doing in these verses in the second half of chapter 15. He's teaching us to expect opposition. First of all, in verses 18, 19, and 20, he tells the disciples some of the reasons. They will experience opposition. Sometimes, actually, it is because we're stupid, isn't it? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to see there is a logic to the opposition you experience. Look at what he says in verse 18. If the world hates you, if the world hates you, then here is something to keep in mind. This is a terrific thing to say, isn't it? Here I am, I discover someone in the world is uh, chasing me down, stalking me, has opposition. Every time I open my mouth to speak about Christ, there is opposition. I feel overwhelmed. No, says Jesus. You just need to stop and think why is this happening to me? Well, he says, keep in mind. Don't lose the heed. Is that a Dundee expression? It's a Glasgow expression. Keep the heed. It's one of the keys of the Christian life. Keep the heed. Keep in mind, he says, that if it hates you, it hated me first. And now I see. And then he goes on and he explains this a little more. He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. Now, what's the key here? It's a very, very important thing for us to grasp, for all of us, perhaps especially for us who are younger rather than older. It's this we need to learn when there is opposition to our Christian testimony, that it's not ultimately about us. I think it was through reading these verses. I read the Bible for about five years as a youngster before its truth ever dawned on me. So by the time I became a Christian, I had a kind of massive store of Bible information. And I remember in my early days as a Christian, finding some opposition as a teenage boy in a class of boys who were not exactly enthusiastic about the Christian faith and getting all the snide comments here and there and reading these words and thinking, it's not really about me, is it? And being able to say then to myself and to him every time there were the, the caustic remarks, Jesus, this isn't really about me. This is really about you. Actually, that's one of the things that gives you poise when you face opposition, isn't it? If it were just about you, then all the mixed up emotions of your life, either your sense of superiority or your sense of inferiority would mingle together and you would, you would break out in a response that wasn't honoring to the Lord Jesus. But when you, when you take it and you, you deflect it to Jesus, just deflect it to Jesus and say, Lord, this is, this is not really about me. I'm thankful that people see a connection between you and me. But this is really all about you, Lord Jesus, so you deal with this and I'll just stand here and watch you doing it. What's the remarkable thing about this is it it surprises those who oppose us. The fact that they can't flatten us, the fact that we're like these uh, punch bags, you know, uh, that you used to see boxers practicing on, you know that would be wheeling away and then they would they would just come back and they knock you down and you just come back they knock you down and you just come back you can't keep a good woman down now what is it that makes the the weakest christian strong like this it's not that i have the inward resources it's, it's not that i have i have armor in my emotions it is that i've I've got deflectors that enable me to say, Lord Jesus, this is, this is really about you. And actually then I discover, like the early disciples, strangely enough, it's a kind of encouragement to me. And Jesus wants to teach us this. You notice in verse 19, he says, if you belong to the world, it would love its own. As, you, as it is, you don't belong to the world. That's why the world hates you. Isn't that a help to us? Somebody trying to knock us down, and we say, "Lord Jesus, I, I didn't think they even noticed." Can I, can I be so much part of your people? Can I have someone who has this new identity that that I don't belong to this world? And that's one of the things that irritates people: you don't belong, you don't fit in, you. You aren't one of us. I can't understand you. Why won't you belong? Why won't you be one of us? And it's such an encouragement because often you're discouraged about your lack of progress. And he's saying every time it happens, just say to yourself, Lord Jesus, it means that I've got a wholly different identity from the one I used to have. And not only that, but he goes on to say this. He says, it's actually an evidence that you really belong to me. That I have chosen you out of the world. That you're mine. Remember when the disciples were persecuted in Acts chapter 5 and they were beaten. and, And then they go back to the other Christians and we're told that they were rejoicing because they had been counted fit, suitable to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. They weren't weren't rejoicing because they were sore. They were rejoicing because there was this illumination from God. If they're persecuting me, it must be because there's something about me that reminds them of the Lord Jesus, whom they persecuted first of all. And so says Jesus. Let's just keep that in mind, he says, because after all, verse 20, you're not greater than your master, are you? How one wishes we grasp this, that if they persecuted him, of course they'll persecute us. But he's saying you need to understand that connection. You need to see the reason. So long as you think it's all about you, you will sink back into yourself And you will be intimidated. And that's the whole point. Intimidation. But if you deflect all this to me, says Jesus, you'll never be intimidated. There is nothing they can possibly do to intimidate you. And when they see they cannot intimidate you, they will be mystified by you. They may even be drawn through you to me. So this is the first thing, isn't it? The Lord Jesus is teaching them here in these verses the reasons why they experience persecution. The second thing that he says in verses 21 through 25 is by way of unmasking those who engage in persecution. And this is, this is very interesting. You see, there's two sides here, isn't there? There's a side, how do I think about myself when I find opposition to my Christian faith? I must remember the Lord Jesus, and I'm connected to him. And that's the reason for all of this. But then he gives us an analysis of those who are engaging in this opposition. They want to intimidate us. They want us to sink. Under the force of their opposition, what are we to do? Well, Jesus gives a diagnosis of their condition, doesn't he? It's almost as though he's saying, dear dear disciples, just stand back for a moment. Let me explain to you what pitiful people these are. And how much they are to be pitied rather than feared. For example, he says the reason they do this is because they don't know the Father. They don't know the one who has sent me. This is what's going on in your life. They see something in your life that you've been accepted by God, that you know Him as your heavenly Father. They see something of the poise and the difference in your life, and they know absolutely nothing about this. The hairs on your head are numbered. You know that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without the knowledge of your heavenly father. They have no knowledge of that whatsoever. Often they seek to buttress their lives by filling them with all manner of ephemeral and useless activity and property they dare not open their hearts. Many of them are absolutely friendless. There is no one they can trust because they know they are not themselves, someone whom others could trust. They are, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, without God and without hope in the world. So, he is saying, don't lose sight of what pitiful people these are who persecute you. If they knew me, if they knew the heavenly Father, if they knew the grace of the gospel, if they had the assurance of salvation, if they knew the fellowship of people they can trust with their lives. He says they know none of this. Not only so, he says. It's not only that they don't know the Father, verse 21. It is that they will face the Father's righteous judgment. Verses 22 through 24. He says, if I'd not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father as well. Now, clearly Jesus is not saying here, if I hadn't come, they would never have sinned. Uh, He has explained earlier on in the gospel that the light has come into the darkness, that grace comes into a world characterized by sin. What he is saying here is, if I had not come and made the Father known, then they would never have had the sin of rejecting the glorious light of the grace of God in the gospel. that's actually the tragic situation of many who oppose the gospel. If Christ had not sent you to them and among them, they would never have been exposed to the particular judgment that belongs to rejecting somebody who belongs to Christ. Actually, that passage that keeps on recurring in our worship today, Matthew chapter 25, isn't that what Matthew chapter 25 says? Inasmuch as you did or didn't do it to one of the least of these, my brothers. And my own conviction is Jesus specifically speaking about believers in Matthew chapter 25. Inasmuch as you did or didn't do it to one of the least of these, my brothers. There are some great and famous Christians. There are some very small and strange Christians. And Jesus is saying, When you treat one of the least of my brothers or sisters in this way, that's the way you're treating me. And for that, you will answer before the judgment seat of God. Remember how Paul puts it. He says, when we witness to Jesus Christ, we always, see, we always see something standing behind the people to whom we speak that, uh, that they have turned their backs on. They are trying to run as far away as possible from the voice of conscience that tells them one day they will stand before the judgment seat of God. And we see that. And when we see... People who grow large like monsters and nightmares in the way in which they seek to intimidate us. We need to see something far larger standing behind them, the judgment throne of the God of all the universe. That will give us poise and stability. It will also create compassion, and it will make us impregnable against their opposition. I remember many years ago uh, preaching at a church conference in Dallas, in Texas, in one of the most opulent parts of Dallas. For those of you who are my generation, you remember the the soap opera, Dallas, Uh, while this was the area it was modeled on, immense riches. Uh, Around this time of year, people would fill their yards, so people who imported snow on Christmas Eve. So that the yards could be sparkling and white. Um, and at Halloween time, the, some of the, the gardens were filled with all kinds of things. Remember, Saturday night, I was driven away from a meeting past a very luxurious looking mansion that had a giant King Kong. A blown up King Kong, which actually stretched over the three-story house. And it said, how How rich and powerful is the man who lives here that he can do this on Halloween? And then to my great, slightly cynical Scottish delight as I was driven to church for the morning service, someone, not I, had taken an air pistol (laughs) at King Kong, and King Kong was... now you see it's possible to do that as a Christian in the face of opposition. Because you know something about this person from which this person is running. That one day they'll stand before the judgment seat of God. And because you're Christ, they keep on bashing you down. And you simply keep on coming back. And then there's this, and this is the thing that surprises the unbeliever who wants to persecute and oppose the believer. This opposition never takes us by surprise. We're never surprised by it as Christians. Remember, Peter says you shouldn't be surprised. Now, frankly, some of us are sometimes surprised by it. But Jesus says there's nothing surprising here. There's no element of surprise attack here, because you notice what he says, they do all this because they hated both me and my father. And this is to fulfill what is written in their law, they hated me without reason. The three different Psalms in which these words appear, probably he's referring to Psalm 69, which particularly takes account of his crucifixion. Jesus wasn't surprised that he was crucified. And the Christian likewise who belongs to Christ is never surprised that he or she finds his or her faith opposed in the world. Sometimes that may come from surprising sources, but that it happens is never surprising. And so, uh, the religious leaders were not sending Jesus into a panic, were they? Isn't that one of the things about Jesus? He He goes through all of this, all of this opposition, persecution, passion, crucifixion. And there is this majestic poise about him, because none of it takes him by surprise. And Jesus is saying the same will be true for us. Now that brings us to the third thing, just in a minute. Jesus is, first of all, in this marvelous way, explaining the opposition they experience. He's unmasking those who engage in that opposition. And then you notice in the third place in verses 26 and 27, he's teaching us something about how we respond to this opposition. And this is so interesting, isn't it? Uh, I wonder if you can see the connection between what he's saying in verse 18 to 25 and then verse 26 and 27. It seems kind of disconnected, doesn't it? All this opposition then suddenly speaking about the counselor coming, bearing witness, and you bear witness too. But brothers and sisters, that is the connection. How does Jesus respond when the gospel is opposed? He sends the Holy Spirit to testify to the gospel. He sends us to testify to the gospel. How do we respond when people seek to close our mouths? Well, we just keep opening our mouths. We just keep Speaking about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. And he says here in these marvelous words, when the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. I just remember what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and testified about Jesus and 3,000 were converted. Or when he came later on in the Acts of the Apostles on an individual basis, think about Philip in the middle of the desert, lifted up there by the Holy Spirit, running alongside the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. And as that man has Isaiah 53 explained to him, the Spirit comes and convicts him and brings him to Christ. Think about Saul of Tarsus. What an illustration Saul of Tarsus is of this passage. Seeking to destroy believers. Seeking to destroy Stephen. And the Spirit came on Stephen's life and gave testimony to Christ in his his last moments. He saw the Son of Man standing there in heaven to welcome him in. What assurance! What grace, what poise. Forgive them, he prays. Like Jesus prayed, forgive them. They they don't understand. They don't know you, Father. Please forgive them. Send your Spirit and bring them to our Savior and give them the forgiveness of sins. And there is Saul of Tarsus as, as furious as man could ever be about the Grace of Christ, he is seen in Christians and seen in this man. And yet, because of this poise, his conscience pricks him. God's word finds him. God's son flattens him and brings him to himself. You know, I've been thinking recently I guess it's a sign of supposed to be retired. I've been thinking recently there are some benefits in getting old and one of the benefits is that you live long enough to see this kind of thing happen in people's lives. The people most hostile to Christ. The people who have harassed you and yet all the while, yes, we've been driven into ourselves. We've Sometimes we've lost sight of the truth of the gospel, but all the while the Spirit has been bearing witness through our witness. And first of all, they've been filled with a spirit of prosecution. And then they're struck by a spirit of admiration of what they hate. And then they're mystified by what it is that makes you tick. And then they're illumined and they begin to see it's Jesus who makes you tick. And they themselves are drawn to him. Think of John Newton, on whose gravestone in the Olney Church are written these words. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine. A servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, and pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. Perhaps that's your story in small letters. Perhaps that's the story that's in the process of being written into your life in fairly large letters. Perhaps that's the role that the Lord Jesus is giving to you in what, frankly, are difficult days where you work, where you live, in the family, where there is opposition, perhaps even persecution, subtle, much of it not so subtle. You need to understand why it's happening. And that will draw forth compassion. You need to understand what Jesus is doing. And that will draw forth intercession. So, by God's grace, may we live for his glory. Not least in the days of this week. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teaching of our Lord Jesus. For the privilege of being able to sit at his feet. We remember how... He taught us, even in this gospel, that his sheep hear his voice. They recognize his accents and they rise and follow him. And we pray that in the human exposition of the word, the divine accent may be heard in our hearts. And that whatever opposition any of us faces, in whatever context, At whatever time we may know that it means we belong to Jesus. We may know that Jesus himself is well able to take care of us. We may know that Jesus himself sends his Holy Spirit to us, that we may witness to his saving grace. So, Lord, help us. We are poor and weak. We are often frightened. We are Men and women and young people of so little significance. But we know we serve a great Savior. And so we pray you would do good and great things to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLUS, the Centre for Public Christianity at solus-cpc.org